Welcome to the 212 podcast, everyone. Each week, we will have a special guest from the industry that talks through how they got into it, the whys, and the constantly evolving creative ideas that are being curated daily within our industry. Our next guest is Larry Heath. He is the director of Heath Media, the founding director of the National Live Music Awards, the A&R manager of Wise Music Group, and associate producer of Sounds Australia. He also has enough air miles to take the whole Chelsea squad to all of the international fixtures this season. I've asked and they are pretty keen. Larry, how are you and where are you today? I'm doing very well, Daniel. I'm in uh, Toronto, Canada. How is that at the moment, being in Toronto? It's, uh, well, we're getting into winter, so the temperature's cooling down. Coronavirus-wise, we've pretty much been in and out of different variations of lockdowns since since mid-March. And it's been pretty tough. It's it's less restrictive than people have had in Melbourne and and other places like that. But it's been frustrating in the sense that there's still nothing to do. Music venues are closed, of course. Art galleries are closed. Cinemas are now closed. They were open very briefly and now they've closed them again. So we're sort of sitting in this limbo where there's really nothing to do. And um, I, I must say I've barely left the house since uh, mid-March. How have you actually been in terms of, obviously, you, you kind of travel about a bit with work and, and you love moving around. How has it actually been grounded in, uh, in Toronto for, for that extended period of time? At first, it was actually quite nice. I was expecting a long year of travel. Um, there was so much that we had set up for this year in those regards, but that first kind of couple of months, it was nice. I, I, it was the longest I'd stayed in one spot in almost a decade. And I didn't mind it. It was obviously under terrible circumstances, but I was as busy as ever work-wise because we were trying to figure out how to proceed. And with that comes a wide range of learning new skills, which uh, we'll get into. But on the whole, at first it was good. Now though, almost, what, eight months in, very yeah, much ready yeah, very much ready to get on the road again and um, even thinking about some things that I might be able to do over the Christmas holiday period just for my personal sanity. But, of course, it's hard to book anything or do anything because the situation is so fluid that tomorrow it might a border might close or a city might go into lockdown and suddenly your trip doesn't happen. So it's very hard to commit to any travel and hard to feel comfortable doing it when there's thousands of new cases every day. Which is totally understandable. Um, I guess if we can go back, obviously we mentioned there that you, you've got the director of the Heath Media, you've got all these different projects that you've kind of worked in. Let's take it back to the beginning. I, kind of what was your first leap into uh, music or publishing industry and, and, and what's that evolution and how's that got you to where you are today and and all the, the other projects that you're working on with the associate producer of Sounds Australia and the A&R manager of Wise Music Group? My career really started in media. I created a website in 2008 called the AU Review, which really didn't have any grand idea beyond wanting to create a portfolio for myself. I was looking at the other websites around at the time, and this is kind of when Hype Machine was really picking up and you had a number of blogs really breaking uh, artists. Pitchfork was still quite relevant. And 
in Australia, though, there wasn't really a website that championed not just the music, but the writer. And just as a side note there, um, Larry, you are you are Australian, but you do live in Toronto as a full time basis now. That's right. Yes. Not uh, the latter not being completely on purpose. I would normally be spending eight years on the road and several months of the year back in Australia. Mm. But uh, I did move to Toronto last year as a method to get to places like New York and London easier. So uh, the the necessity for me to be here now is uh, less, but this is still where I want to be. So, you know, take with that what you will. But yeah, going back to the beginning, it really does come back to this website. And it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a grand plan. There wasn't an idea that I'd get into publishing or even events, but that got me into the music community and everything that's happened for me since then has been because I was able to create this publication and things really exploded for it. We ticked this box in the market. As I'd started to say, there was no one really valuing the musician as well as the writer who's writing the article for the website. There were all these websites popping up where you couldn't even use your real name when you were publishing a piece of content. You were like a, uh, a screen name. You were, it was a message board more than it was a uh, publication. So I wanted to kind of take it back to the idea of a fanzine and really have a group of writers who were championing the artists that they wanted to champion. And there wasn't anyone really doing that at the time. A lot of other websites popped up after that doing that, but we really were breaking new ground for the Australian market and we grew a really substantial audience very quickly and had quite a lot of writers contributing to it. Was that the first five years that you got into the industry that you created that? Or how did it get to to where you are to today, I guess? There were a few years at the beginning there where it evolved into what it is now. Uh, it started out as just a music platform and then it grew into travel and lifestyle and gaming. And we launched a sister website called Hello Asia, which focused on Asian music and culture in 2012, 2013. So... We were doing all this stuff in the digital space and the digital publication space. And then happening simultaneous to that, I was getting brought in to work on events. So I was part of the team that helped launch the Sydney Fringe Festival in Sydney in 2010. I was working with art galleries. I was doing uh, a number of events off my own back for the AU Review and uh, as a promotional exercise more than anything. But we... That was really those, yeah, those first five years were where we were moving from just being a digital publication into being a events and media company, which is where Heath Media was born uh, in 2010. Uh, In terms of the, the formative years, that's definitely the start of the story that leads to me today. Though, if you really want to go back, I was working at music venues Years prior to that, just doing usher work. I did radio work when I was uh, a kid. I was doing voiceover work for Radio Disney in California when I lived there when I was really young, talking like 8, 9, 10. So I've been involved and working in the sort of media space in some capacity since I was really young. So there's, I mean, we could go really far back if you'd like to, but I think... But I think that the the story really does start uh, with the AU review, at least in this current trajectory. 
But even, you know, even then when you were talking, you know, you've got the America, you've got the Asia, now you're in um, Canada. It is, a, it is quite a, a big spectrum of countries and, and diverse uh, spaces that you've worked in. Absolutely. And that's only continued to grow in recent years as well. So what was the um, initial idea? How long has Heath Media been going for and what was the initial idea there and how does that kind of coincide with the AU review and, and, and what you're getting involved in at the moment? So Heath Media came about as the parent company for AU Review. It was created after the fact when it was clear that the AU Review was a thing. As I mentioned, I didn't have any intention for the AU Review to be lasting for 12 years, but... Uh, I just wanted to create something that would give me a launch into that industry. And, you know, if someone had come to me six months in and said, hey, we want you to write for Rolling Stone, I probably wouldn't have kept doing the website. But it really took on a life of its own. And two years in, it was very clear that it was set to be a business. And there were other initiatives at play, like the Sydney Fringe Festival, on the event side of things that were keen to have me involved in it. So... The Heath Media was set up as the parent company for all those media and events that I was involved in. Music obviously plays a massive part of that. You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, with the, the founding director of the National Live Music Awards, the A&R manager of Wise Music Group, uh, Sounds uh, associate producer of Sounds Australia, and all of those have the music in the title or the sounds and uh, is, is that your kind of main focus? Like music is your, your baby? Music is definitely at the heart of everything I do. So while the AU review now delves into a lot of other areas, it always comes back to music. That's really the heart of the website and, and continues to be, as it is for all the projects I work on. I also founded uh, a film festival called the Australian Music Week Film Festival, or I should say co-founded with uh, Jeff Trio, and uh, that was a film festival focused around music films. So documentaries or uh, fiction films that were focused around a music storyline, think like a high fidelity style sort of film. And uh, I ran that for three years as well. Uh, National Live Music Awards came about uh, in 2016 was the first year. So we just had the fifth year of that. And that celebrates the live music scene in Australia. But that actually originated as an event called the AU Live Music Awards, which was, uh, again, a promotional exercise for the AU Review that ran for two years. And, and again, it was one of those things like the website. It, it picked a gap in the market, built a following, and it became clear that we needed to do something bigger than just a promotional exercise for the website, but we needed to be its own entity. So as of 2016, it became the National Live Music Awards. And yeah, we just had the fifth year of that uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago now. Amazing. And your latest venture there is the Sounds Australia. Um, am I right in thinking that you've jumped on board this year? Yeah, they brought me on in January of this year, which was uh, quite interesting timing given <laughs> uh, the nature of Sounds Australia. For those who don't know Sounds Australia, it's the music export office for Australia. So basically we attend conferences like South by Southwest, The Great Escape, all over the world and we put on events and networking opportunities for artists and industry from Australia who are attending those events. 
you know, Australia obviously plays a massive part. You know, you are Australian, but um, being born and bred in Australia and having huge success in the music and publishing industries within Australia, but also that's taken you to the different countries. How do you think it varies in those different countries? And do you think there is a correlation between all of them? I think it's pretty much the same product everywhere, at least when you're talking about Western societies. So Canada, US, the UK, Spain, Germany, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you're really dealing with very similar approaches to whether it be publishing or uh, events. Uh, there's really not much between them. For me, though, I've always had quite an affinity with North America uh, for uh, the reasons of my interest in doing things myself. There's a thing in Australia called tall poppy syndrome, which is basically <laughs> this idea that if you, you know, stick your neck too high up amongst everyone else, you're going to be chopped down. You've, you've got to kind of be put in your place a little bit. You, you can't, you can't uh, achieve, try to achieve too much or you're going to be uh, really um, penalized for it. And I always felt that in Australia. I always felt like, because I was doing my own thing, there was sort of this attitude like, oh, what do you what do you really do for work? Yeah, but but oh, but how do you actually make money? And for the first eight or so years of, of me doing this, even to the point where it was a, clearly a successful enterprise, people would still be asking me that. And when I was in ever in America or Canada, no one ever asked that. It wasn't like, how do you do this? How much money do you make? It was always oh, that's so fantastic. What can we do to help? There's this entrepreneurial spirit, I think, in North America that is discouraged to some extent in Australia. And having grown up, I spent well, part of my time growing up in Southern California, which is, of course, a very liberal uh, entertainment world focused uh, part of the world where, you know, my neighbors were screenwriters who were just doing their thing. And my best friend's dad was a, a film director just doing his thing. And we, I grew up in a place where I was told, if you want to do something, you could do it. And I got back to Australia and you sort of get this attitude that's the antithesis of that. I always found North America to be a lot more encouraging for me in terms of what I was doing. And the opportunities for me were uh, much broader uh, as uh, someone who was an entrepreneur and someone who was trying to go about things his own way. But now that's a very different story. I mean, now I'm very well established in the Australian market. No one ever asked me that question. As, <laughs> as mentioned, I have 3,700 different jobs that I'm constantly jumping between. Um, but for a long time, that made this market very attractive to me and still why I have such an affinity for this part of the world and, and probably why I'm, I'm still here today. Why do you think um, Australians have that? Do you think it's the distance that is so far away from everything that they somehow keep it, you know, internal? Yeah, I think there's that sort of small town mentality that seems to run through uh, the whole country. Obviously, Sydney's a little better, but only to an extent. The And, and, and again, I'm using mass generalisations here. There's, of course, hundreds of people who are near and dear to me, who have never be behaved like that. But it is a 
it's it's gen it's definitely a cultural thing, and I think you find that in any sort of small town, in any country or city that feels quite isolated. Australia definitely feels that isolation. So there's kind of that nationalism that comes with it, where you kind of go like, let's let's keep you here, let's keep you on a certain path, because that's how we've been taught our whole lives. It's how our parents have been taught our whole lives. And how dare you try to do something a little differently? That was definitely the sort of atmosphere that I was trying to build a, a career in, which which made it very challenging. But because I kept traveling to America and the UK and other parts of the world, it was almost every time I would go there, it'd almost be like a restart. I would kind of get that refresh of like, okay, there's so many people around the world doing what I'm doing. I'm not crazy. And um, it really, I feel like if I wasn't traveling, I probably would have given up, honestly. I, I, I never had that encouragement on a broad scale early on. Certainly have that now, but uh, yeah, early on, that was that was a real challenge, I think. And I, I can imagine most people who have tried to do anything like what I'm doing would, would say the same. Yeah, and it it sounds to me again like you're with the uh, with the California and the and the North America. It sounds like it's more just more encouraged in in other countries. Definitely, um, I think that there's a clearer path of independence, whereas in Australia there's the clear path is like working a nine to five and just working for the man, and that is a that is what you're supposed to do. That is what you're expected to do. And if you're doing anything else, that's great. But that's a side hobby. That's a side project. And you even notice that within the music industry to some extent. The minute that an artist gets to a certain size and caliber, there there's this kind of hatred of them. And, uh, you know, I think Jet is a good example of that. You know, a band that exploded internationally with their first album and then just sort of this this negativity towards them once they after appeared that on point. the apple apple um adverts that was it that sold it, out yeah and and that look that's not to say that the music they've made ever since then has been great or anything and certainly there there's plenty of criticism that is valued but there's criticism and then there's just like hate and they got hate wolf mother gets hate these bands in australia who exploded internationally they get this level of hate that you don't see other acts get, and uh, it's I've I've never I've never been okay with that. I've I've never been okay with that level of intense negativity, almost just because an act has become bigger than people think that they should have become. One of the things I do find with Australia, the positive uh, part of it in terms of the, you know, Triple J, for instance, that's a that's a mainstream radio station, but it it does try and get as many new artists in as possible. And I do find a lot of other countries don't have that as their almost their platform. You know, the the top one hundred is 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 sorry, the hottest one hundred is is that's people kind of take days off to to listen to that, which wouldn't happen normally in other countries. It's important to think in context of the Hottest 100, though, that it's usually on a public holiday. It used to be on Australia Day. They've now moved that, so it's on a weekend day close to Australia Day. Uh, That was done out of uh, respect for the Indigenous community. But the having Triple J is a bit of a double-edged sword in Australia. So I love Triple J 
I love Double J. I think what they do is incredible. Like you said, they support new acts. They are responsible for some of the best music we have in the country becoming popular. When when an act really gets love from Triple J, you see not only more love from them from the music going public, but you see other publications, bigger outlets, you know, the sort of mainstream Sydney Morning Heralds or uh, Triple M's or some of those uh, more commercial, is the right word to use, some of the more commercial outlets start supporting them. And I've always pointed to Triple J as less an authority of taste for their listeners as much as it is an authority of taste for the industry writ large. So there's a lot of outlets and entities that look to Triple J for what's hot right now. But there was a survey a while back that basically pointed to Triple J listeners and said, you know, how many gigs do you actually pay to go to a year? And the number was like two or three. Mm. It was a tiny number. And you've got to keep in mind that their audience is like under 24. So it's a younger demographic. These aren't people necessarily going to that many shows. They don't have the budget for it. But what the Triple J's true power, and, and, I, and I mean this with love, their true power is the laziness of everyone else in that the playlists that they create and the albums that they put to the top of their playlists they get played elsewhere as a result and they get love from other publications as a result. So it ends up being a bit of this echo chamber where, okay, Triple J's on board. Now we're, now we can go full blast. And it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that basically says we have to go down this road to get Triple J support or we're not going to get support anywhere else. And that only happens because all these other places are saying we're not going to get behind you until Triple J gets behind you. And so the AU review was always set up as as uh, opposition to that, where it was like, no, we're going to talk about you if we like you. And a lot of the acts that are now Triple J favorites, we were covering for years before they got on board. Lime Cordial, I mean, they were involved in events with us in 2012. Gang of Youths, we wrote one of the first reviews of them and have the first interviews with them, even like Flume and Vance Joy. And uh, and there's other outlets like FBI Radio and, you know, some great community stations that do that similar sort of work where they're discovering new acts that then get on to Triple J a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, I, I found as, much, as great as Triple J is, we do need more than that. We need other roads in Australia for artists this sort of self-fulfilling prof- uh, prophecy that's been created around the lore of Triple J, I think is incredibly destructive to the Australian music community because it puts this false idea in musicians' minds that says, if you want to be successful, you have to be played on Triple J. And that's not true at all because there's so many other avenues to go down. But then at the same time, there's a truth to it because the industry says so. Then I'm not going to book you for Splendor in the Grass if you didn't get played on Triple J. I'm not going to book you for Falls Festival. I'm not going to put you on my uh, radio station. I'm not going to put you in my podcast. I'm not going to put you on my website. I'm not going to sign your band. You know, this idea that there's suddenly a bidding war between labels because they get one song on Triple J is insane to me. I, I it's It's... There's no discovery in that. You're letting every, someone else do all the work for you. And so when, it, when I say there's a laziness, 
I, I like I said, I, I don't mean any disrespect to anyone in that, but that has become kind of how a lot of A&R people work and how a lot of the industry works, where they look to Triple J and then they go, great, Triple J's on board, now I'm on board. And and I think that's that, that's quite destructive. With the Australian music scene, do you think there's more scope to kind of instead of, uh, uh, you know, as you're, as you're mentioning there, you know, you, you, you were in Australia, you kind of wanted to branch out. Do you think there's more scope now and more platforms for Australian artists to kind of break through internationally? Yes, to a point. You've got uh, things like Spotify now, which obviously have incredible pull for playlisting. And as much as I kind of just went on that rant about Triple J, and, and again, I love Triple J. Triple J are fantastic. We just need more than that. We need other avenues. We can't give them this level of power that they don't actually have. We, But Spotify, their playlists are incredibly powerful. And those are now new ways that people are discovering acts and new ways that uh, acts are making money and new ways that acts are, and Apple Music as well and all those playlisting um, platforms. Uh, but they're very regional. So you know, you get in these loops of, okay, an artist gets put on an Australian playlist, they've just released a song, uh, but then they will only ever get played with Australian artists. And you don't see that with American acts, you don't see that even with with UK acts, you know, they're not, you don't get, you don't play Passenger and then only hear, you know, British music that's similar, you hear a lot of it, but you're also going to hear Ed Sheeran, and you're going to hear acts from, um, he's British as well, you're going to hear other American equivalent acts, and and you'll hear some uh, from all over the world. So there's also a difficulty in that, um, in trying to break acts internationally, when these playlists are so regional, and these algorithms that are being created are so regional. And again, you sort of end up in this echo chamber of like, you just keep discovering the same Australian acts that are being played on Triple J and the same Australian acts that are getting signed to the same labels. And you, they're not, it, it's hard to break out of that. And that's really where the sort of work I, we do at Sounds Australia is is so important. And just talk us through Sounds Australia for people that don't um, don't know, kind of why was it set up and, and, and what's, your, what's your role within Sounds Australia? So Sounds Australia was set up a little over a decade ago, actually not too much longer after the AU review was set up. And I started working with them uh, unofficially uh, not long after, uh, just as a journalist. I was traveling around to different events around the world and I was going to the different events that they throw, like the Aussie barbecue at South by Southwest, where they were showcasing Australian acts. And these are on the ground physical events that are showcasing Australian artists to the world. And this is how Vance Joy, Chet Faker, Flume, how a lot of these acts were exposed to international industry for the first time. It is, even though these are events that are only showcasing Australian artists, they were, because they were at events that were uh, frequented by international delegates, you had escaped that echo chamber. And as much as it was important for me to leave Australia and go to these events for my own career, it was imperative for these artists to do the same and to see the opportunities that were outside Australia. It's, oh, oh, there's so much more than Triple J. There's so many more opportunities. And Sounds Australia was set up as uh, the office by which you are given further opportunities. You are given that audience. You are given that um, direct networking um, capability. So you'll be able to sit down with the industry of the world in a way that is 
very difficult to do when you're sitting sitting at home in Australia, at least until very recently, which uh, which we'll get into uh, in a moment. You mentioned with the journalist side of stuff as well. You mean you're well established in terms of writing, uh, interviewing. What's what were some of the best interviews with an artist or person you can remember? And if you want to go into it, the worst. If you want to go into it as well. <laughs> uh, I, I've had so many incredible experiences with artists over the years. You know, getting some of those early interviews are really memorable. We had one of the first interviews with 21 Pilots and uh, I remember sitting in this basement in South by Southwest and kind of just chewing the fat with them and um, it was such a such a great chat and there was this period for a couple of years where we would just bump into each other backstage at every event we were at and um, you really kind of built up this community when you're traveling around the world to all these events where you're not just becoming, you know, pally with Australian acts, but also acts from all over the world. And that really was the kind of secret to the success of the site in those early years was that I was traveling internationally, as were a couple of other contributors, so that we could get these interviews that are impossible to get when you're just a new website in Australia. So, you know, some of those really early interviews uh, are, are very memorable for me. I mean, the first band that I interviewed in person was Frightened Rabbit. Um, a Scottish band that, that many people will know, um, the, the lead singer of whom we lost not too long ago, and um, which was which was really upsetting. And I was actually in, I had just happened to be in Scotland when when he passed away, and I was able to go to uh, King Tut's. Um, was it King Tut's? I think it was King Tut's to um, to sign this this book for him, and you know, and and I w- and I was able to write in that book like how much that first interview meant for me uh, meant to me and 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 how gracious they were and funny and and really those are the ones that stick out are those really early interviews that I was able to develop the craft of interviewing and get comfortable with it you know I, I started out my first interview I had you know with Frightened Rabbit um, I'd done some phone interviews before that but this is my first in-person one and I I, I showed up in Bondi Beach because they were touring Australia at the time and I had this booklet with me and I had all these questions written out. And, and by the end of the chat, I, I, we were just chatting. We were just having a conversation like you and I are now. There were no, I wasn't referring to the notes. I was just, we were just talking. And pretty much from that point onwards, um, I didn't really do my interviews with notes. I would research them extensively beforehand, but I would just sit down with them and just have a conversation. And that approach really developed in those early years. And I, I'm so proud of some of those really early interviews where I had no idea what I was doing and really managed to bring together some interviews that I'm, I'm really proud of and that I, are really memorable for me. And But that Frightened Rabbit one is, is one that, that always sticks out for me just because that really set me on the path that, that you know, led me to interviewing some of the biggest movie stars in the world and some of the biggest bands in the world at some of the biggest music festivals in the world. And um, there was always a thrill in that. It was always, it was often very stressful and you're, you know, um, sitting backstage, you know, waiting for Father John Misty and Tame Impala or the Foo Fighters or uh, Franz Ferdinand or whoever it might have been to come and sit down with you. And you go, oh, is it even going to happen? Are they going to get sidetracked? And I... We, we had so many great experiences over those years, getting to interview my idols. I mean, I mentioned Foo Fighters. Getting to interview Dave Grohl was a big one for me, just as uh, it's part of the reason I got into the industry was 
uh, I was like, oh, you know, yeah. Someone asked me like, what are some of the things that you want to do? And one of them was just have a beer with Dave Grohl. And it's important. It's an important note to to mention is that it's not just music that you concentrate on, but you have had the movie, the movie side of stuff and the film side of stuff as well. So, uh, what what do you do in in that in that sector as well? So I mentioned that I was co-founder of the Australian Music Week Film Festival. Um, so that's kind of the most film forward event that I've uh, been involved in. When it comes to the website, we had a, a, a sister site for a few years called The Iris, which was a film, TV and gaming focused website. And I'd always wanted to focus on film for the site as well as music. I have a big passion in film. I actually wanted to become a film editor. I've ended up directing a couple of music videos and editing a few others, doing a couple of short documentaries as well. Uh, yeah, I did a music video for Amanda Palmer a few years back. And, um, you know, my passion has always been film uh, in addition to music. And I always wanted to get into it in some capacity. So I've been lucky that I've been able to dabble in it from running a film festival through to directing music videos. But as a film fan, I really wanted to get in and sit down in those film junkets and interview on the red carpet and as my skills as an interviewer developed and my confidence there developed, that led me to expand the site and offer my services up for, for film interviews. And so I was at music festivals and music, sorry, film festivals and film premieres all over the world on the red carpet, getting to interview like Will Ferrell and uh, Melissa McCarthy and um, Burt Reynolds and, um, which was actually speaking of memorable interviews, I was on the red carpet, Burt Reynolds, it was a couple of years before he passed away and he came down and he didn't walk the red carpet. He sat down and he had this cane and it was a, a personally carved cane and it had BR on it. It was very much like out of that old show Dallas or something. He was just, he looked like a, <laughs> you know, a Texan tycoon. Um, he still had, you know, dark hair, obviously very dyed and, uh, before he came out, his publicist came out and he says, you must refer to him as Mr. Reynolds. It was like, it was really seeing old Hollywood in, in all, uh, in all warts and all. And, uh, I got to have these incredible experiences and, uh, at, for the Iris. And then we shut down the Iris and brought that back into the AU review. And now film and TV content lives within the AU review. And every now and then I'll do an interview um, still, as much as I'm not as involved these days editorially. Um, I can, I'm an editor at large now. So that basically means I can do what I want when I want. And if an opportunity comes up, I, I do still jump on it because I love interviewing people in film, especially directors that I idolize. I, I got to sit down with Robert Rodriguez years ago and um, Richard Linkletter and, you know, some of these uh, directors that I, I idolize. And um, that's that's been a really fulfilling experience for me um, as a film nerd. <laughs> and with those interviews that uh, from from your kind of start to, to now, how how has the print media changed to social media in terms of the interviews and how 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 you get them out and uh, the amount of, I guess, views versus how many sales you used to have to have to sell on, on print media? Is, has mainly your focus been on, on, on social media and, and, and online? Well, we've actually never been a print 
uh, media. So we have had a couple of print projects. We were putting out an annual book for a few years called Australia's Year in Music that brought together copy and photos from the events that we covered throughout the year on the website. And um, they were great projects to work on, but uh, you know, we sold like 200 copies or something of these beautiful coffee table books that uh, weren't cheap and 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 not not cheap for the consumer nor for us to put together. So uh, they weren't really as viable as they were uh, just a kind of a, a professional exercise. But yeah, so we've never been a print organization. We've, we've really always been, uh, our fingers always been on the pulse of social media and digital media um, across all forms. So um, we've really been on top of that. We have really great numbers through most of our social accounts. We've always focused on that. Um, so for us, not much has changed there over the years. We've just kind of gotten better at um, focusing on those different mediums. Why do you, th- it, it's a very stressful industry. Why do you think people get involved? Because they're mad. <laughs> I, like I wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, I, I've been able to leverage the website to get, uh, to have other things happen, have other projects happen on the side. I've personally never made a cent from the website. Every cent that comes in has gone back to the website. Um, Where I've had success is because I've been able to grow a reputation within the music industry through the website. um, And I've been able to leverage that into the jobs that I have now for music publishing and uh, for Sounds Australia. So I now have a, a stable professional income while the website kind of runs itself. I've got a team that run it and they're doing a great job. Um, uh, But, you know, people get into it for a variety of reasons. Some get into it because they just want free tickets to shows. Uh, Some people get into it because they want to interview their favorite musician or film star. Others like me, we genuinely wanted to do something different and we wanted to help out the artists that we liked and we wanted to help out the writers that we liked and give them a platform. So if something like the AU review is a launch pad for artists, it's a launch pad for uh, writers and photographers. So a lot of the team that we have, we've worked with over the years have gone on to be hosts on triple J. They've gone on to write for uh, other publications uh, where they've become an editor or, uh, or, you know, a high up the food chain in uh, as a freelancer. So, you know, I'm really proud of that, that we've been able to be a launchpad for so many great writers. But I think if you want to start your own publication, you've, you've got to be a bit crazy. And um, because, yeah, I, I don't know very many who have ever made money out of it. It's it's something that it's something that's very hard to maintain. And um, there are other publications in Australia that have fallen to the wayside not because they didn't have an audience, but because they struggled to monetize that audience and they struggled to survive uh, themselves and they had to put that first. And that's and that's a pity uh, that we're even in that situation where you can have these great organizations where the people running it can't be paid. Um, but that's kind of the nature of this beast at the moment, which is where no one wants to pay for content. So, uh, and then, all the people that you're writing about, they don't want to pay to be promoted on it either. So it's very hard to sell ads these days and it's very hard to monetize it uh, either way. It's possible and you can do it and we've certainly done it. 
but not to the extent that uh, one would would expect. Um, so people, you know, they get upset when a website closes, but you kind of go, yeah, but did you ever pay any money to view that content or did you ever uh, spend any money on ads for that site? Like, and the answer is almost always no. I guess positives uh, that have come out of it would probably be that, um, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and you 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 must have seen this on your your travels, and please give some examples if you do have them. But have you seen an increase in artists producing new albums and releasing new content during during this time? I don't think anyone's releasing more content than they would be otherwise. A lot of the artists that I'm working with are actually holding back on content until next year, but they're all writing, and there's busy as they've ever been in terms of producing and creating content. I think 2021 is going to be an unbelievable year for new music. 2020, 2020 has been an opportunity for artists who normally would be traveling the world to sit down and focus on their craft and uh, create new projects and write new books or, you know, like there's, you know, whatever that side hustle is, that you had, you might uh, you might suddenly be focusing on that a little bit more. Uh, there's a lot of examples I can think of of artists doing that, but for the most part, artists have been just focusing on their music. They've been writing, um, they've been uh, collaborating digitally in a way that they've never been comfortable doing before, and they've been open to doing things in a new way. So I think the, the benefit for this pandemic across the industry uh, on a on a broad like you know just casting a broad stroke here is that people are now open to doing things digitally in a way that they've never been open to doing it before. Have you kind of ticked things off the lists that you've had uh, there on the back burner for ages? Have you got any future projects that you're, that you're excited about or something that you've ticked off the list that you're excited about? I definitely wanted to do things. <laughs> uh, there's a book that I've been wanting to write for years. Um, there are other projects that I've had in my mind. Um, but honestly, my work with Sounds Australia and uh, the Wise Music Group has been so all-encompassing. And then going on to moving the National Live Music Awards to a digital, uh, physical kind of crossover event uh, in October. Um, between that, I've had absolutely no time. I'm working harder on the, the existing projects I have than I've ever worked. Um, that's not taking into account the fact that I would often travel 24 hours, jump off a plane, and then go run an event and not sleep for four days. But uh, but it's a different sort of busy now. I mean, I'm, I'll am i be sitting in front of the computer for 20 hours a day, not doing anything. Uh, not nearly as fun, <laughs> but also, um, a, a sort of busy that is um, isn't as rewarding either because you're not able to see the fruits of your labor. I was running events in Australia at nine in the morning uh, from Toronto. Uh, it was nine in the morning in Toronto and it was late in the evening in, in Australia. And I'm just sitting here in my uh, in my underwear <laughs> running an event <laughs> and and uh, you know not able to enjoy it. And that's, that's hard. That's, that's been really tough uh, mentally. And, you know, as much as I think everyone's been trying to pivot as much as they can, I think that's an important thing to mention as well. I think that uh, mental health has been a real problem this year. We have lost not only great musicians to coronavirus, but we've lost great musicians to suicide this year. And I think it's important to preface that with reminding people that there 
uh, are organizations that are available for help. If uh, in Australia, uh, Support Act has a helpline that you can call. Uh, there are other organizations all over the world that do the same. Um, but, you know, I, I really stress that, that as much as plenty of artists have been uh, pivoting, as much as plenty of businesses have been pivoting, plenty have died in, uh, you know, from a, from a business perspective and, and a huge perspective this year uh, because they, they felt, you know, this was too much for them. Their livelihoods were gone. Um, the live sector has been completely decimated and people working behind the scenes have no jobs. And, uh, you know, at least some musicians can still release music and make money from it. But, you know, the, the lighting tech that tours with artists, they've, they've had no work. There've been little things here and there that, that have popped up and, um, but it's, that's just been devastating. And, and so I, I think that's, that's important to mention that, um, while there's been plenty of ingenuity, there's also been a lot of loss and, um, and and a lot of people have really, really struggled with that. And it's understandable. The music industry is a is a very is a community built on community. We are people who are, have grown into a social life that is requisite of travel. The people that we are closest to are the people that we bump into at airplane lounges in London and, you know, from one festival to another. And that's been something that's been really hard for me as well. It's, you know, I haven't been able to see my friends. I haven't been able to have that social life. So as much as we talk about it in a monetary sense, and as much as we talk about it in a business sense that people have been able to pivot and do this and do that, that doesn't account for the loss of a life, a loss of the ability to see your friends and that social um, aspect and that social aspect and that connection to an audience as well that you lose. So, you know, it's, that's been really, really hard to see. And I, I don't think enough emphasis has been put on the social aspect of being in the music industry um, and the loss of that social aspect and, and just how devastating that has been as we've mentioned numerous times, I think that's pointing to 2021 being really, if everything kind of gets under control, really being uh, huge. I mean, you've got the Olympics, you've got the, the, a lot of massive sports uh, events happening and festivals and, and weddings and, and everything was, has all been pushed back. Um, is there a dream uh, company or, or dream festival or event that you, that you'd like to work on? I've been really lucky to now and that I, I feel like I've gotten to tick so many uh, boxes in my career of things that I've been able to do. I think really for me in 2021, you know, the, the real joy for me this year was joining the Sounds Australia team. I was able to go to South by Southwest and, uh, sorry, not South by Southwest. Um, I was able to go to Folk Alliance in New Orleans in January uh, and attend uh, that event and was able to run our the Sounds Australia stage there, uh, which was such a great uh, experience. And really, for me, looking at 2021 it, uh, and 2022 more realistically, it's going to be that. It's going to be able to run those events with Sounds Australia. I've been lucky enough to work with them, as I said, unofficially over the last decade. We even partnered on an event called Jetlag in New York in 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, I ran that for three years 
and that was such an incredible experience. And so I, to be able to do more of that is going to be really important for me. Um, outside of that, I mean, I still have, you know, there's still part of me that wants to do more in film. I, uh, I, I love the film industry. Uh, being in Toronto, there's so much uh, happening up here. And, you know, one day I'd love to do more in the film industry. Uh, but for now, I really would, you know, love to see things to start return to normal. And I think, as you know, up to now, I've been spending eight months of the year on the road, and and I don't think that's going to happen anymore. And and I'm going to have a bit more balance in my life, in theory. Um, less travel because there's going to be less events. There's going to be less international export happening for quite a while. So, so yeah, I think the next couple of years, I'm going to be bringing a new balance into my life, which is going to be nice. And and hopefully, spending more time at home, which is now Toronto, and. Which is and probably good for traveling. a lot of people in in the events and art industry because uh, it can be quite a full on full on industry to work in. Absolutely, it's a really tough industry, and I think that it's an unhealthy industry uh, at times as well. Not just because you are on the road often three hundred days of the year, but you're also living uh, an unhealthy life when you're on the road. You're eating shitty food. You're drinking way too much booze or, you know, doing other, other things, which are, may or may not be legal. <laughs> and, uh, and it's fun and it's, and it's great, especially when you're in your early twenties and, and able to do that. But, you know, I'm, I'm 33 now and, and certainly still young. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go, go out and be like, Oh, I'm old now, but I can't party like I used to. And I can't pull those hours like I used to. And, and, and definitely going into this year, I had the, objective to have more balance in my life and then I got offered the Sounds Australia job which I couldn't say no to and and suddenly I was looking down the barrel of oh great here we go another eight months of the year on the road and uh you know I certainly got what I wished for in that, that sense of less travel but um you know be careful what you wish for as they say but yeah so so moving forward it's bringing more balance into my life I think in general in the industry there will be an opportunity for artists and people behind the scenes find new financial revenue outside of the norm. So obviously digital events are going to continue. There's going to be a lot of digital events that are going to continue and there's going to be ways for you to make money from your desk at home. And so I think that that's important that, that we, that we keep that going moving forward, that we don't put this pressure on people to be on the road 300 days of the year, just so that they can pay their, pay their bills. And beyond that, you've got, um, uh, it's really then about kind of making the most of those experiences that you do have. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that balance. I'm looking forward to being able to run events again, and, you know, in person and, um, and, you know, entering kind of a new stage of my life, really. It's uh, as, as we exit this uh, pandemic, whenever that might be. Is there any uh, bands or, or films or anything you're looking forward to in 2021 to see? Um, obviously, there's going to be a lot of new music that does come out, as we mentioned there in 2021. Is there anyone you're really looking forward to see? Well, I had tickets to the Rage Against the Machine run the Jewel shows this year um, in Toronto, and I was really looking forward to that. Um, I had tickets to a Foo Fighters show. I had tickets to a December show. I had, I had tickets to a lot of a lot of gigs up here. Um, the Rage Against the Machine show, I'm pretty sure, is the only one that I still have a, a ticket for. They've just rescheduled to the same date next year. Uh, the Decemberists as well, I, I think I've still got that. I don't think they've cancelled that. It's just the same date next year. So I'm, I'm hoping that those shows happen. 
Um, realistically, I mean, that's July, August next year. You know, you hope that there's touring happening by then. Um, but, uh, but yeah, who knows? It looks like there's going to be a new Arcade Fire record next year. I'm a big fan of them. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, a bunch of the artists that I'm working with, Jack Cardi, Hearts, uh, the Beamish Brothers and a few others are, are all releasing new music next year. So I'm really looking forward to the world hearing that because it's just phenomenal stuff. Um, I've got a project uh, that I'm working on for the 70th anniversary of Chess Records, which is um, really exciting. Uh, that's going to come out next year. So I'm excited to put that out into the world. So I've got a lot of uh, professional, you know, um, stake in, in, in projects happening next year. Uh, and then you've got those other events happening from a personal perspective. But man, I cannot wait to go and mosh to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> I, I just like, I've, I, I've never needed that more than I do now. That new Idols record that came out this year. I mean, it was like, oh God, I was like, listening to that record just wanting to pick up a chair and throw it across the room and um and just and, and just mosh it was like and i and look i haven't moshed in years i'm i'm the person that stands up the back of the room now and i'm very happy to do that but uh, believe me when i say that uh, those first few gigs i go to because i have not been to a show since an event that i ran in new york on march 13th so i um i i I, I don't know just quite the damage that I will I will make on that first <laughs> that first gig I go to. So if anyone That's sees uh, Larry at a Rage Against the Machine, just step aside. <laughs> mm. um, move out of the way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Larry, uh, we're coming to the end of the uh, interview and, and, and uh, the episode. Um, I, where can um, people find out about your, your, your projects that you're working at at the moment and, and I guess the future projects that you're working on? So for the Sounds Australia uh, projects, you can go to soundsaustralia.com.au. You can sign up to our newsletter. If you're an Australian artist looking to export uh, in the short or long term, you know we've we've we're still working on events. Uh, there's 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 stuff that's been happening in the last couple of weeks, even uh, all digital, of course. But there's still opportunities for your music to be heard around the world. Um, and for industry to meet other industry through digital networking events. So please sign up to our newsletter. Uh, for the publishing side of things, head to wisemusic.com.au. That's W-I-S-E music.com.au. And you can learn about the artists that I work with there. Uh, for my personal projects, uh, heathmedia.com.au, H-E-A-T-H media.com.au is where you can uh, learn more about those projects. Um, if you want to learn specifically about the AU review, uh, you can go to the aureview.com, the National Live Music Awards at nlmas.com.au, and uh, and you'll find everything that you need for all those projects and many more at uh, those reputable websites. Ever the uh, the professional uh, listing off all those websites, like you know, it, like the back of your hand. Larry, um, it's been great speaking to you, and and thank you very much for joining us. Likewise, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Larry.